This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. The things we love, what can we learn from them? When it comes to our relationship to other human beings, a lot. Everything from how our evaluations of car insurance are guided by our human connection and how much we value and love those around us. Even affecting how much we think we can trust ourselves. Sometimes we don't even like our stuff, yet alone love it, and we simply toss it aside, discarded. All of these things we can discover by assessing how much we love our stuff. As a marketing professional and the world's leading expert on brand love, today's guest, Aaron Javia, has spent a career studying why we love the things that we do. In the process, learning how it is we develop a deep ability to love. Today we learn the factors that guide us to the things we love and how that translates to every area of our lives. When we return to The Light Inside. When it comes to mobile service providers, with their high rate plans, extra fees, and hidden cost or expenses, many of the big name networks leave a bad taste in your mouth. Mint Mobile is a new flavor of mobile network service, sharing all the same reliable features of the big name brands, yet at a fraction of the cost. I recently made the change to Mint Mobile and I can't believe the monthly savings allowing me to put more money in my pocket for the things which truly light me up inside. Making the switch to Mint Mobile is easy. Hosted on the T-Mobile 5G network, Mint gives you premium wireless service on the nation's largest 5G network. With bulk savings on flexible plan options, Mint offers three, six, and 12-month plans, and the more months you buy, the more you save. Plus, you can also keep your current phone or upgrade to a new one, keep your current number or change to a new one as well, and all of your contacts, apps, and photos will seamlessly and effortlessly follow you to your new low-cost Mint provider. Did I mention the best part? You keep more money in your pocket. And with Mint's referral plan, you can rescue more friends from big wireless bills while earning up to $90 for each referral. Visit our Mint Mobile affiliate link at thelightinside.us forward slash sponsors for additional mobile savings or activate your plan in minutes with the Mint Mobile app. The things we love, in many ways, they define who and what we are. They shape and mold not only our worldview, they also make us feel a greater sense of attachment and interconnectedness with our fellow human beings. In many regards, they convey a deeper urge to bond and connect with others. And as technology improves, becoming increasingly addictive, one wonders. Might our lives become so dominated by our emotional ties to things that we lose interest in other people? If you're like most people, at some point in your life, you found yourself indulging in a love affair with some thing. That thing bringing you immense joy, comfort, or fulfillment. We join our guest, marketing professor Aaron Ahovia, to find out why we love the things we love. Amazon has named Aaron's book, The Things We Love, one of the 20 best business books of 2022. Aaron, why is it that we often feel such intense passion for objects? Bottom line, I was a PhD student in marketing. Um, I never 
thought I would end up a <laughs> student in marketing, much less a marketing professor. My undergraduate degree is in philosophy. There are no jobs for philosophers, uh, and there are a lot more jobs for people in marketing. Um, and I always was very interested in consumer culture. I had a lot of critiques of American consumer culture as, as perhaps excessively materialistic and was interested in studying that and discovered that uh, as a marketing professor, I didn't have to necessarily be sort of rah-rah about consumerism all the time, but it's a position that you can really take a look at this and, and, and do research in that area. So I've always been interested in, in why people, you know, spend their money or save their money or want more money or, you know, all, all those related kinds of things. I mean, and what leads to happiness is a big concern of mine. I have a very large stream of research on the sort of science of how we use our money and earn our money and spend our money, how that relates to our happiness in, in different ways. Um, more specifically about the things that we love, I had this opportunity early in my career as a PhD student to work with a professor, Mara Edelman, who had this really interesting data on a matchmaking service. This was back 30 years ago. The internet was just a gleam in some technologist's <laughs> eye. <laughs> it, was, it was about to begin. And what was all in the news was that all of a sudden, a lot of people were starting to use singles ads and dating services and matchmakers. And that had never been part of American culture in a big way before. Um, and we had some research on that. And that was great. It was as a marketing PhD student, I used to make money doing these little seminars for people like how to write a singles ad. It was like marketing PhD student at Kellogg will teach you how to write a singles <laughs> ad, you know? Uh, so, <laughs> what a great pitch. <laughs> I agree. It was a great pitch. It was, it was very fun. I, you know, was working with some matchmakers. I really always loved the idea of helping people find and form relationships with other yeah. people. So working with a matchmaker as like a consultant to the matchmaking, I happened to help them be more successful. It was really fun. And in order to do that work, I needed to really become an expert in the psychology of love, why people fall in love with each other, what creates attraction between people and how dating works. So I, I spent years studying that and got quite expert in that. Then I needed to pick a topic for my dissertation and wanted something that would be a lot more mainstream, help me a lot more in the job market. I knew if I got pigeonholed as the dating services guy, this was not going to help me get a job at a, at a good school. Um, but I had all that knowledge and wanted to put it to use. And it kind of occurred to me that, wow, well, you know, people don't just love other people. People love all kinds of things mm -hmm. and people love activities. What if I take this perspective on the psychology of love and applied it to understand why we love stuff? I was very lucky. It turns out that I was the first person to, at any sort of larger scale, do research on that topic. So I was the first person to really publish empirical work in that area. Since that time, a lot of people have thought it's an interesting question. And if the, one of the terms that comes out, um, I didn't invent this term, but I helped popularize it with, in a later paper with Barbara Carroll. Uh, the term is brand love. And so if you're in marketing and you yeah. want people to love your products, that's what they call it, brand love. <laughs> but brand so love. You were, you were the brainchild behind that concept, huh? Yeah. As yeah. somebody who has a 35 year history in branding, marketing and design, that's 
a term that resonates well with me. I go back to college, you know, all the way back to when I was 17, 18 in my history with branding. So that's a yeah, very yeah. familiar term with me. It's, that was one of my early, it wasn't my first publication. It was one of my early publications. And we, yeah, we really popularized the term. I did a Google search. You, there are like one or two occurrences of the term before that out there, but nobody was, was much yeah. using it. So in terms of, of brand love, now if you put the search into Google Scholar, you'll find over 14,000 different scientific mm. papers from people all over the world that are using this. Yeah. Uh, so it's very, it's become a, a large area and it's been really interesting to see that grow. And part of what I do in the book is I just get into the basic psychology behind it. So if you happen to be interested in marketing or maybe you work at a nonprofit and want people to love your nonprofit, I've talked to librarians about how to get people to love libraries. I'm talking to the nation of Vietnam about how to get people to love their country for in terms of tourism. So there's, there's lots of different ways you can look at it. Um, however, there's a whole other side to it, which isn't okay, I'm a marketer and I want to get people to love my brand. It's I'm a person out there in the world and I love my, you know, this item I've got on my shelf, this vase that I've got on my shelf. I really love that thing. Or I love this, my shoes or my car or my cell phone or whatever it is. And you just want to understand your own life better or the people around you a little bit better. We all tend to have that drive to find more of the things we love in life, the things that bring us joy and happiness. I'd like to maybe dive toward the core of that. Are there two, three, four factors of that act of love that start to form that guide? You know, what guides us toward the things we love? Oh, it's an intuitive process. I know on this podcast, you're interested in the unconscious mind. It's primarily an unconscious process mm -hmm. just like when you're dating you can say like oh this person looked really good on paper but there wasn't any chemistry right? it's the same kind of thing it's this issue of chemistry a, a lot of times what that chemistry involves are a couple of different things happening at the same time yeah one is pleasure so this i can get into how this works but there's some songs or books or movies or activities or even, you know, clothing items that you just look at or and you be like, oh, that is fun for me. That just like lights you up. Right. So that's a lot of uh, the intuition behind it. And then there's another big part, which is your sense of identity, where you want it to help you become the person you want to be. The things that we love by their very nature, become part of our identity. That's what it means to love something is to make that thing or person a part of your larger sense of identity. We do that with every person that we love or everything that we love. And so if things don't fit with that identity, that also prevents you really from loving them or makes it difficult. And you see that sometimes you'll have people will talk about, quote, guilty pleasures. And guilty pleasure is something that... Mm turns you on in terms of the pleasure, you enjoy it, but it doesn't fit with your identity. So, you know, you see yourself as a sophisticated person and this thing does, isn't something that a sophisticated person would like. Uh, so generally you don't necessarily love that. It doesn't sort of fit with, with what you're trying to do with your sense of self. That whole kind of sense of dichotomy between our identity can form such a unique and interesting interaction. How we're relating 
coming out of that. (laughs) People, so I'm going to dive into a little bit of science here. Yeah. But um, identity is really important to understanding love. And, you know, for listeners, you, of course, are interested if you're listening to this and, you know, why we love stuff. But psychologically, it's 90% connected to why we love people. And so this is something that's just basically true about love. Love did not evolve uniquely in people. Uh, We just use a different vocabulary. When biologists talk about love in animals, they talk about the word bonding. But when you look at the neuroscience of what's going on, uh, especially other mammals that have brains similar to our own, their bonding and our love are just two different words for 90% the same thing. I mean, every species is different. Humans are a little bit different. We experience things a little bit differently. But the core of this, it's a lot more same than it is different uh, across these different species. And so then you want to look at, well, why is it that all these different animals evolved this love as as a psychological mechanism? And there's this amazing 100% correlation. So there are, biologists have logged over a million different species of animals. And if you divide them into two broad groups, you can say these are some animals that raise their offspring. Um, and then there's a lot of animals, the majority, where they lay eggs and the eggs hatch and the offspring fend for themselves from that point on. They don't really parent their offspring. Well, you find this bonding in every single species where the parents raise the offspring, there's bonding between the parents and the offspring. And in species where the parents don't, there's never that bonding. So that's like really obvious what Bobby is doing there. It's like, okay, this is a motivational system that gets parents to take care of their kids because the parents got this food. And as an animal, the instinct is to eat that food. And you have to have some system that comes in psychologically and says, don't eat that food, give that to your kid instead, which is not an obvious thing for an animal to do, to like find some food and then give it to some other animal out there. So this is a, this is a very you know it's, it's a way more complicated than that. Yeah. But just, if you want to if you want to like have some big picture idea, well then the question becomes how does that happen? If you've got an animal, these are not they're not sitting around philosophizing. This happens in birds, right? They they feed their kids. So how at a simple evolutionary level, what happens millions of years ago in animals? to get them to actually evolve this mechanism. And so what, what biologists believe is that there's there's pressure, sort of there's, there's advantages to this. Yeah. You're going to be more, if you feed your kids, they're more likely to survive, they're more likely to pass on your genes. There's an evolutionary, obvious evolutionary advantage there. But just because something is advantageous doesn't mean it's invented by evolution because evolution works by random mutations. So what evolution always does is it looks, is there something I'm anthropomorphizing evolution here, but forgive me for that for a minute. (laughs) Imagine evolution is a person. It's not. Evolution looks for something that already exists, that it can change in some little way to get the effect it wants, rather than inventing some complicated thing out of whole cloth. So evolution looks around and says, well, look, this animal, um, it needs to feed and protect its kid. It already feeds itself. It already protects itself. So if we can get the sense of self to expand so that now the child is included in that sense of self, then the parent's instinct to feed itself will be to feed the kid. 
and the protected self will be to protect the kid. And so all of those things will sort of happen automatically. So having other people, and of course, over millions of years, we don't just love our kids, we love our friends, we love our spouses. But all in each case, what's happening is our sense of identity is expanding so that the other person becomes part of our identity, not 100%, not completely, not the same way we are, but to a large extent, part of our identity. And then we take care of them and we look at the, out for their interests and we you know, are proud of them and we treat them as if they're part of ourselves. And this is also true with the stuff. So the stuff you love also becomes very much part of your identity. From a certain perspective, all of these interactions reflect our inner child and how we learn to form our association with adults. What does this tendency then tell us about our society? Uh, and, and you can see this uh, in the sense of pride. So pride is an emotion that you feel about yourself, but not other things. So if somebody says the moon is very beautiful, you don't feel proud because you're not the moon. But if they say you are very beautiful, you do feel proud because it's addressed to you. Well, if they, if they say, oh, your outfit is very beautiful, you also feel proud. Now, why are you proud when somebody compliments your outfit and not proud when they compliment the moon? It's because your outfit psychologically is part of who you are. And so you feel proud about it in that way. You know, it could be such a dichotomy of schema in there where we start to form all of these fractured sense of selves from my perspective, where this part of me is relating, this part's not, this part is looking for that part. That whole notion of authenticity kind of steps in here. For me, you know, what is our idea of authentic? What is our core self then becomes some of that interaction? Are we ultimately looking for the you and me and the me and you, and there's no real disconnection. We're all that one core energy. There is a authenticity is a, a big part of this. For the things people love, they do feel there's an authentic connection. And you can see that I mentioned part of it is a sense of pleasure. Things can be very valuable to people, but they don't necessarily love everything that's valuable to them. So your insurance policies are very valuable to you. I've been asking people about things that they love for 30 years. Nobody's ever told me they love their insurance policy. I don't love that mine just went up. <laughs> my relationship is kind of a love-hate right now with my insurance policy. <laughs> so you've got a very pragmatic, practical relationship with your insurance policy. And you can value it, you know, if you've invested a lot of money in it, uh, you can value it very highly but you don't have any emotional connection with it. And the emotional connection comes from the sense of pleasure. So I'll tell you about two women I interviewed, one of whom said that she loved her exercise, her workout shoes. And the other one said that, oh, I love my workout shoes. Well, you know, no, I don't. I don't know why I said that. I really don't love my workout shoes. So I got this nice contrast there. And what was the difference between these two women? Why one of them loved their shoes and the other one didn't? The one who loved her shoes enjoyed the process of working out. So when she was using the shoes, there was this intrinsic enjoyment of that experience. And that made her feel that her connection with the shoes was an authentic expression of herself. So that, that, that having that internal pleasure, which is not a conscious thing, it's not a decision you make, it's this response of your body and mind to this activity. The person says, well, if my body is responding with pleasure, 
that tells me this is an authentic part of who I am. Whereas the other woman um, said, you know, I don't really like working out. I like being fit. I like looking good. So I like the results of working out, but the process itself is not enjoyable to me. So I guess what I really love is I love looking good or I love being fit. The shoes are just a means to an end. So when something is just a means to an end, we can value it because maybe it's a good means. Maybe it's an important means to the end, but we don't necessarily love it. And we see that in our normal language with people, too, when they say, does you know that person love the other person or are they just using them? Right. If they love them, that means there's this intrinsic, authentic connection. Mm -hmm. If they're just using them, they're just a means to an end, like this woman was treating her shoes. Yeah. And that's no love mm -hmm. there. What we do often with our old pair of shoes that no longer serve us, we just toss it aside and discard it. So a lot of the times, or here's a great segue to attachment. We ought to, if we're rational, we ought to toss it aside and discard it. And we do that 99% of the time. But sometimes you get attached to those shoes. Right. And then they don't fit, and they're broken, and you can't use them anymore, and you still keep them, right? And that's how you know when you've got this kind of an emotional attachment, when there's something that you really ought to throw away, <laughs> it's not doing you any good anymore. Um, but you just feel like, oh, I can't really part with this thing. I don't want, I don't want to get rid of it. So from that initial perspective, before we segue here, maybe, would you say then that our core associations, I'll say associations with the things we love, or just simply meant to be a signal for us to validate and verify what we value, who we are, and what we feel we are as human beings. Yes, I think that that's in a broad term. Like if I were to give a very simplified definition of love, I might say loving something is finding it to be so excellent that you want to make it part of who you are. So this is, you know, this sort of desire for something is a desire to take that thing in just the same way when you love a person in romantic love, you want to like, you want to like, just pull them into you physically. You want to hug them. You want to kiss them. You want to, like, want to connect and, and sort of merge with this other person um, to get pharmacological for a moment. I don't know how familiar you are um with uh, the drug mdma that's being used <laughs> in... i know of it <laughs> let's put it that way it's not something i have a one-to-one -one relationship with of experience so to speak but yes <laughs> so mdma because it's very interesting from a scientific perspective because it's a chemical agent it works pharmacologically physically on your brain right mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's this physical activity going on in your brain and it was people know it best as ecstasy. And there's, you know, a lot of times when people would take it as a street drug, they'd use it at raves or a party drug. It would have all kinds of other stuff mixed into it. And if you, you know, dear listener or someone who sampled this, you probably don't know what the hell you were taking because it could have all kinds of stuff in it. Not a good thing to do. Um, but scientists are very interested in this. And there's a lot of medical uh, research going on with this, um, looking at how it can be used therapeutically. And it creates, if two people do it together, it creates this closeness, this bond between them. And what it's doing is it's breaking down your sense of self and opening yeah. your sense of yeah. self. And you just sort of are merging with this other person for you know a couple of hours. And it's an incredibly powerful experience to people who talk about having, having done it. Yeah, that's interesting to me to look at that from that level of 
maybe a more evolved, let's say evolved or developed notion of ego, you know, that level of psyche where, you know, where do we start to form that separation from others? Where do we form those separations within ourselves? That's one of the common religious ideals. People most associate it with Buddhism, but there are mystical traditions in a lot of other religions that in Christianity and Judaism, um, I'd be willing to bet in Islam, although I'm not an expert on that, uh, that have a, a very similar take, which is at, at the sort of highest spiritual level, you have, quote, become one with everything, right? And you've, you that sense of ego <laughs> is broken down. And so, it's not just that, okay, your children are part of your sense of identity, and now your your mate is part of your sense of identity, and your friend is, and maybe your hometown is, but the entire planet, maybe the entire universe, everything has been brought in. And, and when that happens, it creates a real sense of generosity towards the rest of the universe. Although there are also, you know, in psychology, people talk about, um, oh, I'm missing the term, I'm dropping the term for it'll come to me in a moment. But talk about unhealthy ways in which people sort of connect. Because most of the time, the connection is, oh, I love this person. I'm making them, bringing them into my sense of identity. I'm going to treat them well and generously, just as I would want myself to be treated well and generously. Be a very dissociated relationship where we're avoiding that actual act, even though we're trying to initiate. Uh, could you say more? What do you mean by that? We have the internal drive where we have the urge to connect, but for whatever reason, we form that natural resistance. Oh, that then might be the emotional drive or the psychological drive, the disconnect or blocking point. Yeah, a lot of that um, happens it, according to attachment theory, which you've probably talked about on the show yeah, in yeah. the past, and is just a, a quick refresher. The basic idea is that as you're a young child, if you are strongly positively attached, which is another just another synonym for love, you've got a good love relationship with yeah. your parents, usually your mother. Um, then you build this model in your head that like, oh, the world's a safe place. Other people are good, mm-hmm. and when you grow up you keep that model in your mind and it's easier to form relationships because you basically trust other people. If when you're young, you have a very troubled relationship with your parents, then you can build different, more negative models. One is I'm not worthy of love. That's why this isn't going well as a, as a one-year-old yeah. or um, I'm worthy of love, but other people aren't trustworthy. Mm-hmm. They're not going to give me the love I need. They're not going to, they're going to do bad things to me. Or in the worst case scenario, no one's going to love me because they're all nasty. But I, even if they weren't, I'm not worthy of love either. You could have like the the, the, the worst combination there. Um, and those models stick with you. And then they actually affect the way you relate to objects as well. So there are some situations in which people do sort of transfer. There is a little bit of either or kind of thing. So people who are very into animals, pets, frequently are people who have a little bit of difficulty in their social relationships with people. 
this is not true for everyone. I'm not saying because you own a dog, you have a hard time making friends, right? <laughs> you know, my I, wife and I, we have two dogs. We love them. It's uh, a relationship. I just pondered today, you know, and there are times where I can look back on that. And I did not just bringing this into reference. It was very poignant today. Very relevant where I was pondering that connection with not just my present dog, but past dogs where there is that kind of non-judgmental. I'm just accepted for me kind of relationship. Oh yeah. Our, our dogs love us. I, I once saw a bumper <laughs> sticker that said, uh, God help me be the person my dog thinks I am. And I, <laughs> I, love, I love that. Um, <laughs> let me be that good of a person. Clearly my dog thinks I'm fantastic, but there are people who will tell you straight out. They'll say, well, I like, I like dogs or I like cats more than I like people. Yeah. And in that kind of a situation for those individuals, there's a sort of a substitution going on. There, there is, they have for whatever reason, a difficulty in their relationship with people and they're substituting these, these pets. That kind of thinking is, is very, was a big issue, still is an issue in the research on our relationships with objects. Yeah. So when some of this research started, there was a, a very famous book by uh, Rochberg Halton and then Another gentleman who went on to become quite famous, a guy named Mahali Csikszentmihalyi, who's known for his work on flow and happiness and a bunch of other stuff. But one of the very early books, they went and talked just to a whole bunch of people, went to their homes about, I would say, things that they love. They called them favorite possessions or special possessions, the same thing. And they also had these people fill out some psychological measures. And one of the things that they assumed going in was that the people who had the most attachments to objects would have the fewest social relationships because they were trying to compensate for their lack of social relationships. And what they found was fascinating. It was just the opposite that yeah. the people who had the most connection to objects uh, also tend to have the most connection to people. And if you think about attachment theory, this makes sense. Yeah. So there, there are some people they're they're raised with really good strong, safe, comfortable relationships with their parents. They feel the world's a good place. They get to be good at making relationships and they make relationships with people and they make relationships with things. They're just relationship prone people. And there are other people who are much more wary and standoffish and they have a hard time with the people and they have a hard time with things. So that's, that's part of it is then the other side, just really quick, which is, is another huge aspect of this is that most of the time the things we love do connect us to people. So you ask someone, if your house was burning down, you could only save a few things, what would you save? They'll say, oh, I'd save the photo albums. I'd save this souvenir. I'd save this gift I got from somebody. All the things that they're gonna save are things that connect them to other people. So they're photographs of themselves with other people. There's a piece of furniture that was in their family for generations that they feel connects them to the history of their family. Um, there's a gift they received from this person. It's very special because they care about that person. So if, if we love things largely because they remind us of what people that we love, well, if you have a lot of people in your life that you love, you're gonna have a lot of things to remind you of them. And if you don't have really close relationships, you're not gonna have all these things around your house reminding you of these relationships because you don't have them. In the tapestry of our lives, there are threads woven with profound meaning. Threads that connect us to what we hold dear, to the memories that shape us, and to the people who mean the most. 
They're the physical embodiment of our emotions, imbibed with significance far beyond their material worth. A worn-out teddy bear carries the weight of countless embraces, symbolizing the unwavering love and comfort we sought and found. A faded photograph captures a smile, a glance, and a shared adventure, reminding us of the people who have shaped our lives and left indelible marks upon our hearts. In these objects lie the intangible connections we forge with one another. Symbolizing the bond shared between kindred spirits, encapsulating the trust, loyalty, and unbreakable ties that define true kinship. But amidst the beauty of these conditions lies a subtle darkness. An attachment to possessions can become a double-edged sword, silently eroding the simplicity and freedom we once cherished. Find out how when we return to The Light Inside. I want to share a little secret with you today about a podcast booking and matching platform I truly love. As a podcast host and guest, my go-to podcast booking app is podmatch.com. If you currently have a podcast, regularly guest on podcast, or if you are new to the podcasting game looking to start your show, podmatch.com is an industry leader. They quickly and effortlessly connect ideal podcast guests and hosts. Their process is super easy and highly effective. Create your free guest or host account and set up your profile. It's really that easy. And the Podmatch AI will work its magic in the background, delivering your ideal interview matches within minutes, tailored uniquely for you. As a host and executive producer of the Top 100 Self-Improvement Podcast, The Light Inside, I found more high-quality guests on Podmatch than anywhere else and in a fraction of the time. So if you're looking to expedite your podcast booking experience, fill in your calendar with high-engagement content, creating value and meaning for your listening community. Check out podmatch.com, that's P-O-D-match.com, today and discover your ideal match magic. The accumulation of material belongings can sometimes ensnare us in a web of ownership, trapping us in the pursuit of more, while binding us to the essence of what truly matters. We risk losing sight of the intangible joys of life, laughter, love, and the beauty of fleeting moments. When we allow our happiness to be defined solely by what we possess, at times, this relationship is complex. So, from that aspect, I'm going to reel back here, I feel. Would you say, then, our core sense of security not only drives our sense of self, but also our ability to connect, interact with other people, and then also the objects that we love and value. Yeah, for the most part, I, I would. So it is complicated. I would say that the main, <laughs> the main dynamic, yeah, I hear that for me, every every question I answer is complicated. That's what you get, that's what you get with me. It's I, I am a master in complication. Sometimes the point <laughs> that I struggle to simplify. So yes. yes. <laughs> so so yeah so the, the the largest effect the main situation is that the things that we love usually connect us to other people 
There are some, and I know you wanted to talk about this and we can get into this darker sides to things <laughs> where um, things that we love do become a substitute. I really have never seen, maybe I just, you know, don't get out enough, but I've never seen a case where people have fallen so in love with some hobby or some object that it's really pulled them away. It's destroyed their relationships with people. The only times that that happens are that I'm aware of is with drug addiction. Um, so that, you know, the drug becomes such a powerful pull on them that it really destroys yeah. all kinds of other stuff in their life. But I've never seen someone who's like, oh, I started collecting beer cans. I'm so into beer cans that I don't want to see my friends anymore. I just want to hang out with my collection of beer cans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, does, that doesn't happen. But what does happen is people start, you know, collecting beer cans or whatever they're collecting, whatever it is. And they've already have sort of a social deficit. They already, they're, they're lonely. They have a hard time making friends and they find that this connection to these objects keeps them busy. It doesn't build, it doesn't replace the social connection. It doesn't keep them feeling lonely, but it distracts them from their feelings of loneliness. They're busy. They've got something else to do. It entertains them. And so they put a lot of time into it. And then a strange thing happens with people, and this comes, you see this in the psychological literature on loneliness. You would think that when people were very lonely, they'd be very highly motivated to go out and do social things. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, we have this negative psychological cycle that'll happen, where when people start to get very lonely, they get resistant to going out and doing social things and meeting new people. And then it can sort of spiral and just become worse and worse through that. And, and so if you've got some sort of an interest, maybe it's playing video games, um, whatever it might be, that is something you do that's a solitary interest. If you get into the cycle of loneliness, then that can get become more and more important in your life. Uh, but I don't think it's really driven by your extreme love for this thing, again, with unless it's an addiction. And I wouldn't call that love, but you know, I don't think it's really driven by your extreme desire for this thing. I think that it it starts. People are much more motivated around people than they are around objects, and people really drive our motivations. And the objects kind of come along for the ride most of the time. Now, it's interesting for me to look at from my study and my practice of how people then tend to move into some of those emotionally avoidant behaviors of those acts of suppression, those acts of self-sabotage, especially, you know, I'm just now contemplating this idea of, you know, a hoarder, how we get so caught up in that cycle and process of I got to grab more, I got to find more of this thing. And I'm ordering these things and how that might, in many cases, distract us again away from that act of what emotion, what interactions, what connections am I actually trying to avoid or suppress? So there's two different things that are going on in some of the behaviors you described, and they're both worth talking about. They're, they're very interesting. I know the show wants to focus on unconscious issues, and this is a good chance to get into some of those unconscious issues. So your listeners, I mean, may have heard stuff. People talk about like a distinction. They'll talk about the left brain versus the right brain or these kinds of dichotomies. Um, I'm going to introduce a new one that's very powerful in the brain that I'm not sure everyone will be quite as familiar with. And that is that it sometimes is even in different parts physically of your brain, but it's really just different ways that your brain works. Mm -hmm. Your brain works one way when it thinks about people and it works in a very different way when it thinks about things. Uh, and 
it's very good at most of the time of separating people from things. And it does this on an unconscious basis. So if you are looking at a person and you want to know like, oh, have I seen that person before? Your brain will process that visual information in one physical part of the brain. But if you're looking at a plate and asking the same question, it will process it in a different physical part of the brain. So this is that, mm. that there's a very clear distinction biologically in your brain with, with how it works on these things. And that makes a lot of sense because a lot of things, first of all, people are much more important to you than most things. So the parts of the brain that cover what are called social thinking or the processes in the brain that involve social thinking take a lot more energy and resources than the, the ones that don't. So that's, that's kind of like the high powered, yeah. Yeah. you know, parts of the brain. That's I, you can sort of think of that as like the first class section, right? And, <laughs> and, 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 there's, and there's a bouncer there who's saying uh, the only people get to go into the first class section, right? Cause we're going to yeah. lavish them with resources. We're going to think very deeply about them things. you got to go coach, yeah. right? You will push you off to this other section. So, when you are a hoarder, what's happening is there's a malfunction in your brain. And this sorting device, I sometimes call it the bouncer in your brain that's sorting the people into one category and things into the other. <laughs> this sorting device is malfunctioning and it's putting a lot of things in the people category. Yeah. And that's why they have a hard time getting rid of things uh, because it's good. Like if you, especially if it's a person you're in a close relationship with, you want to be loyal to them and you want them to be loyal to you. You don't want a situation where, uh, you know, you get injured and all of a sudden all your friends walk away from you and say, oh, he's a broken person. I don't want anything to do with him. You want them to keep you around even when that happens. And that's part of what our love is. It's sort of a compact between people yeah. that, that even if you break your arm, I'm still going to take care of you at that point. Um, but you don't want that for stuff. If, if, if you've got a teapot and it's broken, you don't want to keep it around. You want to get rid of it. So your brain sorts things out this way so that it's easy to get rid of the teapot, but you don't necessarily get rid of the people. When you start putting all the teapots in the people category, you can't get rid of them either. And you'll see this. Uh, I have one example in the book of a, a woman who was a hoarder who went to the store and picked up some more, I think it was canned peas, yeah. uh, and brought them home. And the, the researcher was asking her, well, you've already got like eight unused cans of peas in your <laughs> cupboard. Why did you go buy a ninth one? And she said, well, I was in the store. And all the peas of this kind were all sold, except for this one can that was just sitting there on the shelf all by itself. And it looked so lonely mm. and forlorn. I thought, oh, I've got to buy it and take it home so it can be with his friends, all these other cans of peas that I have on my shelf, and it'll, it'll be happy there. So obviously her brain is thinking about this yeah. can of peas in a, you know, in a very human way. And that's a, a, a core mechanism that yeah. underlies people's yeah. hoarding behavior. Yeah, that again, to me, moves us back toward that act of dissociation where we're disconnecting from the actual interaction. Yeah, we often hear that we reflect our belief or we reflect our desires, you know, especially our core blocks. That act of nurturing, to me, might then symbolize that relationship back in our childhood where we didn't feel seen, acknowledged, and nurtured. 
Now I become the caregiver. Now I project that out and I'm unsafe to do it with human beings. The can is not judging me. The can does not expect a response from me. The can is unable then to carry out anything that I feel a threat within my environment. For the most part, there is there is a sort of safety of objects. Uh, sometimes it's it's weird. People feel you know, can, can sometimes personify and anthropomorphize objects to such an extent that they sometimes feel they are judging them. You know, they, they, they don't feel, you think they would feel really safe. This is true with food. People talk about food, like that chocolate chip cookie is always going to be there for me. It's always going to yeah. love me. Um, and, and, and that's, that's definitely, uh, there as well. Yeah. I'll give you that one. Yeah. You know, I back up a second here, and this is a thought that kind of come to me. We talked about that bodyguard in that interaction, you know, that switch that bumps us, what area of the brain's processing. This is something that's always fascinated me when we look at that notion of mindset. You know, we hear mindset matters, mindset matters, mindset matters. It becomes the conditioned mantra. So I've always been fascinated. I tend to look for a 40,000 view. How do we reverse engineer this? What determines first and foremost, which part of the brain it's going to when we start to learn that it's a different part of the brain. I stumbled upon this awareness of afferent and efferent neurons that control literally through your ventral vagal nerve and guiding which area of that brain it goes to. And there again, my own attachment to that need for security and certainty. I said, what is creating that? I'd like to have that understanding in my belt. Yeah, well, the, when you, there is a switch or a sorting mechanism in your brain, and it's sorting things into two or three groups, depending on how you want to think about it, yeah. it's sorting things into like the objects, the people, and then there's also this group with, within people, people that I'm close to and people who I'm not close to. And the people I'm not close to get treated partly as if they're objects and partly as if they're people, kind of this in-between yeah. uh, category in the way your brain works. And it is sometimes true that there are different physical parts of the brain that do this kind of thinking. It's also true that um, sometimes it's a matter of different processes, more than different places mm -hmm. that are going on. But there's def definitely a big difference between what we call social thinking, where we think about people and objectified yeah. thinking, yeah. the way we think about objects. Your brain actually decides if something is a person or an object. It decides that twice. Mm -hmm. So it decides it once consciously and once unconsciously. And that's very important because most of the time they agree. So when I'm looking at, you know, my glasses, my conscious brain says they're an object and my unconscious brain says they're an object and that's all good. But there are these situations where they don't agree. And that's what's going on with the, the woman in her can of peas. Yeah. Her conscious brain says it's a can of peas. Her unconscious brain says it's a person. And she starts treating it like a person. Um, this has a big impact, a big yeah. impact. Now that's come up a lot with artificial intelligence and falling in love with avatars online. Mm -hmm. There are companies that you can go to. There's one called Replicant. And until recently, well, they've got avatars. So you go and you talk to, it looks like a person. Yeah. It's yeah. just a computer generated that. image. It, it speaks using artificial intelligence. The and you can have, don't talk back. <laughs> yep. And you can have this friendship. <laughs> as bad as that sounds. And people really yeah. like these friendships, right? Yeah. You can have this friendship with it. Yeah. And, and then they used to have an option for romantic relationships mm -hmm. as well. 
that you could have a romantic relationship with all these things. They recently stopped that because they were getting kind of weird press about it. But there are other others that are taking this up and people really fall in love with these things. And the reason is that the love is driven by their unconscious mind. And so their conscious mind knows that it's not a person, but unconsciously, that switch is very easily fooled. And that that's processing it as if it is a person and you're generating this love. I just was reading last night about another wrinkle in this whole thing that was, I should not have surprised me, but did. So there's a influencer who's a very attractive woman, attractive young woman, who for a dollar a minute, you can sign up and she'll be your girlfriend. (laughs) It's not her. You don't get her. She has a computer avatar that looks just like her and that's run by artificial intelligence that she says has her personality. And for a dollar a minute, you can have the computer avatar as your girlfriend. And apparently there was over a thousand people who have signed up who are all paying to have this facsimile. So it's almost a person. There is a person who looks like this. It's just, you're not interacting with that person. You're interacting with the AI version of that, but uh, you know, it's as close as you can get. That's interesting. I want to take a moment and pause here because I got a couple of thoughts I'd like to work through with you. First and foremost, you know, we've been doing some research background on social community, social interaction. You know, what are some of the unconscious beliefs there? We stumbled across this notion of how in-group and out-group bias often surfaces through the act of parochial empathy, where parochial empathy is that ability to see that core empathy and compassion to people you share those like values with. Mm-hmm. So relating to that in marketing, we're going back to our marketing backgrounds here because there is that large element, the core guiding element to me of human interaction, human connection. This idea of no like trust as kind of a new brand love, no like trust builds our perception, that kind of switch or bodyguard gateway. Do I accept this person and connect or do I reject? I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you might interact with that idea. When we look at that idea of know, like, and trust as a brand motto, as a marketing motto, right? what elements might come into play that create either the connection in that idea of know, like, or trust, or maybe the adverse or flip side of that, where we start to leverage that as a form of biases that limits our ability to connect rather than create the, the engaged connection. Well, what, what I'm a little lost on is, do you want an answer from the, like a marketing perspective? You've got a brand. I would like to go a or little do you want deeper it? to the psychological side where that might become that slippery slope of divide. You know, do we engage in group connection or do we stray into a bias and disconnect? Yeah. So right, let, me, let me start with a little bit about in groups and out groups. <laughs> So most of them talking about this, this switch in your brain that yeah. roots things, routes in things as either people or things. I did very briefly mention how actually you could think of it as three categories, because yeah. when you get to people, there's people who are close to and people who are not close to. Um, so that's another way of talking about the in-group, out-group dis- distinction. And when you think about people that are close to you, especially people that you love, uh, there's no difference between the way your brain 
processes them, thinks about them, and the way you think about yourself. And that's part of what we started off by talking about how when you love something, you it, you make it part of yourself. And mm. part of the evidence, the scientific evidence for that is simply that, yeah, we can see that when you think about yourself, uh, you your brain does it in one way. And when you think about some stranger, it does it in another way. And if it's someone that you love, you think about them the way you think about yourself. So they're, they're very much... Yeah. It's not just poetry to say this other person is part yeah. of yourself. I mean, yeah. your brain is treating it like this person is, is part of yourself. And then the objects are even further away, right, than, than <laughs> people are, than, than strangers are, 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 are or, or outgroup people are. Now, in terms of the no like trust, um, that is a nice, from, especially from a marketing perspective, and also perhaps from an interpersonal perspective, it's a very plausible path, yeah. right? If there's some new product, first you have to find out what it is, you have to know it, and then you decide if you like it, and then if you do like it, uh, you decide if you're going to trust it. Part of that process that a lot of people don't understand that's really overlooked is that knowing, you can do that in the object parts or processes in the brain, you can do that entirely with objectified thinking, or you can also do that with social thinking. Yes. So you start to get to know a, a product out there. Let's say it's your insurance. Right? <laughs> you can know about your insurance. You might get to think it's good. You like it in the sense that you think it's good insurance, you value it. And you trust it. You, you've researched the company and you found out that they do pay off their policies most of the time. And so <laughs> you, 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 you know it, you like it, you trust it. But yeah. it's all using this objectified thinking. You don't have an emotional connection to that. Whereas when I talk about brand love, it starts out the same. You have to know something about this product or this organization. But then something has to happen to get you to think about it in a social way to get your brain to start processing it in a social way, because that's where you start to feel this sense of connection to it. You start to have this emotional connection and you start to really trust it in a deeper way and really want it and connect it. And you get all this emotional action that is, is very valuable in creating this kind of connection. So if you want people not just to value something, but to have this deeper sense of emotional connection to it, the secret there is first, there has to be some enjoyment to it. We talked about the women in their running shoes, right? <laughs> you have to, if you, you have to eat, like, that's why nobody loves their insurance because there's no pleasure in insurance. It, it disappears, right? It's very, yeah. it's important. I'm very happy I have my insurance. I pay for my insurance, but it's not fun. There's nothing fun about it, right? So you don't get that sense of emotional connection from that pleasure. But then there's this other aspect is which your brain isn't thinking about it as if it was a person. And there's three ways that you get your brain to think about something as a person. The first is you anthropomorphize it. Mm. So you see this with products like Siri on your phone or Alexa, where you talk to it and it talks back to you. And when, when it emulates a person, it looks like a person, it sounds like a person, it talks like a person, it acts like a person, your unconscious mind will start treating it like a person. That's why people fall in love with these avatars on computer screens to talk to them, mm. you know, because it, it looks like a person, it talks like a person, your conscious mind knows it's not a person, your unconscious mind makes a different decision, besides it is a person, and you get this emotional uh, relationship to it. The second way 
it doesn't have to itself look or sound like a person. It just has to be connected to a person in your mind. So insurance, the extent that people are loyal to their insurance companies, it's not about the insurance. It's because the insurance salesperson has done a really good job yeah. and they know and trust the person who sold them the insurance. So, so they have an emotional connection. It's not actually to the insurance, it's to the person who sold them the insurance. But th these things are very connected in your mind. And you can tell if you've got that kind of emotional connection because your feeling about the object depends on or, or is connected to your feeling about the person. Classic example, you're dating someone, they give you a gift, you're, you feel you're in love with them. It's a, it's a decorative gift of vase or a little something and you put it on your mantelpiece and you're very happy every time you see it. And you think, oh, I love that thing, it's so beautiful. And then you break up with the person, the relationship is bad, you're very angry at them. You look at that vase on your mantelpiece, you're like, this is horrible, I'm getting rid of this thing, it's the first thing to go. So your feelings about the object are really a reflection of your feelings about the person. Yeah. When you can do that, that's another way to get people uh, to start having their brain process something in, in social and human ways. And companies do this all the time. Companies will have a spokesperson that will be connected to the brand. And then yeah. your feelings about the brand yeah. become related to the spokesperson. Or maybe it's the founder. Like I know a lot of people were fans of Elon Musk. Um, he's, he's hit a little bit of a rocky road lately with some people, but you know, <laughs> Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or people yeah. who are really into Ferrari are very big on Enzo Ferrari, the founder of that company. So fashion designers, people are very into fashion designers or obviously bands. You, you see the band as a person or a, a sports team, the people <laughs> on the sports team. So there's lots of ways that these connections happen that way. And then the third way is that you just get it to be part of the person's own sense of identity. So if something is part of who you think you are, because you're a person, your brain will process that in these social ways and you'll develop that same kind of emotional connection to it. And that's always a part of it when you love something. Sometimes it connects you to another person. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it, it's anthropomorphic. Sometimes it isn't. Yeah. But always it's a part of your own identity or, or it wouldn't be love. It's interesting in that regard for me then to go back and look to that reference earlier in our conversation talking about my insurance company. You know, I don't have an agent. You know, it's all online. Therefore, mm -hmm. my relationship through the you know, mascot, I'll say the mascot, I'm not going to necessarily give the pitch for the company here, but through the mascot is the only kind of material association I have. Might that then make it easier for me to entertain that idea of breaking up that relationship? Now oh, my yeah. sense of value is challenged. Now I'm biased because suddenly as the price inflates, I'm seeing this disconnect. You know, I'm starting to form this biased view now that somehow this company is now lesser, even though I've been happy in that relationship based on well, that I'm value, I'm going to divorce them. <laughs> I wouldn't call that a biased view, though. I yeah. would call that a relatively unbiased view. Relatively informed, huh? relatively informed right because maybe it's yeah. maybe it's just an expensive maybe it's not the best insurance for you so mm. one of the things your brain but when your brain treats things as an object it's easier to be unbiased about yeah. that yeah uh, and that's sort of more of an unbiased realm it's when your brain starts treating something as a person that these biases just come flying all over the place yeah so yeah. uh if you associate a product with like your in-group you know, this is the music that we listen to. Mm -hmm. Remember back in high school, um, 
this is true. Like, you know, there's all these different cliques out there, and so many of them have their own music. Like, oh, these are people who listen to this yeah, music. Yeah. These people listen to this other music, whatever uh, it might be. If your clique listens to a certain music, you're going to evaluate that in an incredibly biased way, and you're going to hate the other group. Um, I listen to country music now. I enjoy it on uh, on the radio. When I was a teenager. I, oh, I thought it was terrible. Why did I, you know, hate it so much then? Well, because just because my group of people, we were the rock people, we weren't the country music people. You know, they were they were some other group of people. And so I'm very I'm very happy to to hang out with my country music people now. Uh, <laughs> don't have those, you know. It's the nice thing about not being in high school anymore. You kind of outgrow some of that silly stuff. But um, yeah, so we, you get very biased about that, and people will like or not like products depending on who they think is making it, how they feel about the people who made the product. And you can, and they'll flip their opinion. If they think something is made by one person, they don't like them, they won't like it. They learn it's made by somebody else. They'll be like, oh, I guess I see those things in there that I didn't see before. So the biases tend to come in there. And, and it's in the human sphere that you get the in-group and the out-group. So there's a lot of things, you know, when we, we create our identity partly through the things we, we own or the things we buy, but what's very important a lot of times are the things we wouldn't own or wouldn't buy. And those are things that are associated with outgroups. Yeah. So, you know, I would never show that particular brand, right? I would be embarrassed to own that particular item. Um, and it's usually because it's not about the brand, it's about other people the other human beings, the outgroup that you associate with that brand. And it's very interesting to see how kind of micro and macro, how far we zoom in, zoom out on that lens can become down so much even to our association with colors. I'll throw it out there like that. Or cultural associations, even with core colors. Yeah. How might that psychology start to come into play with those associations? Well, people have looked at, psychologists have looked at why people love certain colors more than others. Yeah. And it's really a, a matter of how you associate them with, with other objects. So there's a particular color of brown that's nobody's favorite. And <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a real, it's a universal reason for that. We just have a negative association with that color brown and people really don't like it yeah. uh, very much. But there are other colors that are very variable. So there's actually a correlation between how much people like the color yellow and how much they like bananas. The yellow is associated so much with bananas that it sort of carries over uh, from one to another. And you know, so you'll find people in colleges, like they'll come to love the, the school colors of their own university. And if there's some other rival university that they're you know, supposed to dislike, they'll dislike the colors uh, from the, the rival university. Hmm. It's such an interesting dichotomy to just kind of ponder how we can empower that and sometimes reduce it. Where does the core value lie? You know, that's such a unique area to look at. You can learn to like things. One of the pieces of advice I have in the book is that it's very easy to make snap judgments about objects, about a song, you decide if you'd like it or not instantaneously. And a lot of times that's valuable information, but there are other situations in which you can cultivate a taste for things. And I think there's a, a virtue in cultivating a taste for things that aren't necessarily part of your social in-group. Yeah. 
maybe pick something. There's some out group. You know, you all listen to this music. They listen to this other kind of music. Spend some time with that other kind of music. Think nice thoughts about it. Get to know it. Get to like it. And then you maybe you'll have a an opening for the, the people that are involved too. Because I think those associations work both ways. I mean, the reason that you don't like that other music is because you don't like the people. And when you get to like the music, maybe it opens you up a little bit to liking the people. Yeah, I can relate to that because I spent 10 years in music marketing. Perhaps to kind of sum our show up today, looking at that relationship when we have that divide between what we consider, you know, our unacceptable, what is pleasing to us and being available and open to shift to those things that might be challenging. I find it interesting to look at that idea of we're taught or we are conditioned that idea of we only grow when we're uncomfortable, yet we don't always embrace that discomfort to move toward the change. When we view how we associate with people and brands, when we associate with in-groups, out-groups, what might be the psychological leverage point or sticking point that creates that middle ground, where we shift psychologically from disconnection into connection? What is the tipping point between what we like and what we don't like? Yeah. So I, it's just, it's just, so you, what, what distinguishes between what we like and what we don't like? There's so many different factors. It's a it's a little bit too broad of a question to answer easily. There's a topic that I think would be of interest that I do think we kind of missed, and I'd like to get into it a little bit if we can. Let's cover that. So let's talk a little bit about materialism because the word means a lot of different things to different people, Mm. and I've done a lot of research on materialism. Some people use the word materialism to mean just like any sort of attachment to a material object. So if you really love your sofa, that's, you know, materialistic. It can be, you can use the word materialism that way. That's a legitimate way to use it. It's not really the way that I tend to think about it, uh, especially after doing the, the kind of research I've been doing. Most of our relationships with things are ways of relating to other people in disguise, right? There we don't really care that much about stuff. And what really drives our emotions about stuff are associations that we have in our mind between those objects and other people. And then they get swept up in our feelings about the other people. And our feelings about other people can be very strong, positive or or negative. Uh, What I see as problematic materialism is when people use objects and money to try and play a, a competitive status game. And it's not that we, you know, we all have to play this game. Part of human nature is split. Part of it is affiliative, becoming close to people and connecting with people. But competing with other people is an inherent part of the human experience. We're never going to be you know, in a society where, we, where there's, no, there's no competition. But we can tone it down a little bit. And it's not, it doesn't make for the happiest relationships with people to be socially competing about status all the time. And so there's lots of ways to kind of turn the volume down on that and emphasize finding close, warm relationships with people and de-emphasize competing over status with people. And the things that we love tend to be things that help us form those warm relationships with people. It's the 
I love this game because I play it with these other people and it brings us closer together. I love my TV set because I have my friends over to watch things on it together and it brings us closer together. All sorts of objects which seem very materialistic. At the core, it's usually that we have these connections that, that bring us closer together. Uh, I talked, did a whole study on young people and their love of cell phones, their thoughts about cell phones. And it was fascinating. What they really wanted was the connection to their friends. It's it's not always the best way to connect with other people, but that's what they want from the phone is they want the connection to their friends. And the people who have more friends love their phones more. So it's a correlation between the number yeah. of friends a person has and how much they love their phone because they love their phone because it's connecting yeah. them to their friends. Yeah. But there's this whole other side because we're using this stuff to compete for status with other people. And I saw this also in just horrifying ways in, in the study of, of young people on their phones that there were, I talked to people who were literally bullied at school because they had the wrong cell phone. People would come and tease them and harass them. You've got the wrong phone. You don't have the cool phone. You've got the other phone. You're a loser. It's just horrifying kinds of stuff to hear. And so what I think of as materialism is, you know, that's an extreme example. But we do this when we buy status goods, when we buy stuff that shows off one way or another. And what I hope people would focus around isn't whether you have a relationship to some object. There's nothing the matter with objects. There's nothing the matter with the physical world. The, the physical world that we live in is a wonderful thing. And, and physical existence is the only existence we have, in my view. And I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Um, there's nothing wrong with nature. There's nothing wrong with your body. There's nothing wrong with stuff or other objects out there in the world. The problem comes in when you use those objects in a way that is competitive and makes other people feel less, uh, less than, and it drives a wedge between you and other people, and it's trying to be a source of one-upmanship, as opposed to using those things to build a stronger community and build better, warmer relationships with people. So that would be my take on things. I would suggest not evaluating something as being either good or bad because it's a physical object. I would say the evaluation should come in. How does this object shape my relationships with other people? I think that's a great point to kind of sit with and end on today. How do we step back from ourselves to form more openness, vulnerability, and conscientiousness simply in how we view our connections throughout life and throughout the world? I want to thank you for sharing such insight and wisdom today, Aaron. This truly, every moment of this conversation has led me to a new path of thinking, has shifted my perspective and gotten me out of my own way. So thank you for providing that doorway. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's really been a pleasure. It truly has been a pleasure for me as well. Where can our listeners go to connect with the things we love, how our passions connect us and make us who we are. I'd love to get them in touch with the book. So the book is available on you know most large bookstores, any online bookstore uh, will, will have the book. I've got a website called thethingswelove.com. So just you know, all one word, thethingswelove.com. And if you're curious, it's got a little quiz 
So you can put in something that you think you might love, like you write in my shoes and you'll answer a couple questions <laughs> about it and it'll give you a score, your love score, and you can see whether you really love your shoes or not, or you can put in anything you want. So it's kind of fun. Um, you can find that on the website as well as finding information about the book. And I do a lot of public speaking. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can find that on the website as well. I'm adding this book to my new list of things I love. I look forward to diving even further into it and learning even more after this conversation. I love that we've had this connection today, Aaron, and that we've shared this conversation. Namaste, the like me acknowledges the like in you. Thank you so much. Uh, namaste as well. Thank you for having me. It's been a, a great conversation. The attachments to our possessions can inspire us with pleasure, or they can turn into a burden. Wait, the shackles. We find ourselves caught in a cycle of nostalgia, clinging to the tangible reminders of what once was, often at the expense of embracing what is and what could be. The fear of letting go can consume us, preventing us from forging new connections, exploring uncharted territories, and experiencing the fullness of life. In the delicate dance between cherishing and letting go, we somehow find balance. Through all the smaller things, we learn to appreciate the value of our belongings, not merely as possessions to be owned, but as can do it for love, memories, and meaning. Therefore, we can treasure the physical tokens of our journey while also recognizing that their true power lies in the emotions and experiences they present. Ultimately, the things we love, when viewed through the lens of our hearts, become a reflection of our innermost desires and values. They reveal what we hold dear, what we are willing to fight for, and what brings us solace in the darkest of times. They are the compasses that guide us, and they remind us of the beauty and fragility of our human connections. So let us celebrate the objects that bind us, but also let us hold them lightly. We want to express our love for you, our near and dear listening community. If you were touched by this episode and found it meaningful, share it with those you truly love and hold dear. For it's in the moments shared, the love exchanged, and the lives touched that our truest treasures lie, the intangible riches that forever dwell within our hearts. This has been The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey B. Secker.